Hey, 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 guys. Welcome to Building This Community. This is your city business and policy development podcast. We're your hosts, Luke Patrick and Andrew Klump. Welcome to this week's episode of Building This Community. Our guest today is Darren Heitner, who is a former sports agent turned intellectual property attorney, former contributor to Forbes, and an adjunct professor at the uh, University of Florida Levin College of Law. Darren, how are, you, how are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Glad we could have you on the show today. Uh, so I just gave people a little bit of the background, uh, but can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. I started my own law firm back in 2014. Prior to that, I had worked at two law firms in South Florida, and currently I'm in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Really, I, I was born and raised in South Florida, went to school at University of Florida from 2003 to 2007 earned a political science degree, and then went straight through to law school from 2007 to 2010 and started practicing law immediately thereafter. As you mentioned in the introduction, I'm a former sports agent. I actually started a sports agency as I was going into law school in 2007, built it throughout my three years of law school, continued to work on it for roughly a year thereafter while I was at my first law firm, and then decided that I preferred practicing law. And put aside that dream of being a sports agent, at least for the time being. And as you mentioned, I, I am also uh, a teacher and I taught at Indiana University at uh, Bloomington for three years, a sports agency management class that I started from scratch. What's kind of cool is recently following the NBA draft, two of my former students are actually agents who represented players uh, who were selected in this year's NBA draft. That was a cool moment. And then this past week, even talked to one, another former student who uh, works at the NFL Players Association. So that, that's a cool feeling. Uh, and currently, I do teach sports law at University of Florida 11 College of Law, where I went to school. So to do that within 10 years of graduating is also a really cool feeling. But you know, my main practice is practicing law. I've been doing that for over 10 years now. And as you mentioned in the intro, I have uh, a pretty strong practice in intellectual property. It's not all that I do, but I've certainly, I believe, created a name for myself in that area. So, uh, Darren, that transition from sports agent to trademark or IP attorney, that's super interesting to me. Can you explain what what drove that transition and, and uh, you know what, what that meant to you? I can't say that I specifically planned on pivoting from sports agency to being referred to as an intellectual property lawyer. What I intended on doing initially was simply practicing law. And at first, believe it or not, my first year of practice, I was primarily handling insurance defense litigation. And what happened was in, in my off time, uh, whether it be at the end of the workday or thereafter, I tried to build my own book of business. And one area that fascinated me wasn't actually even trademark, it was copyright law and, and specifically litigation surrounding copyright. And I don't recall the specifics. I think it was based on my writing, in fact, that I started to gain some clientele who had been sued for copyright infringement. And from there decided, look, I, I had this background where I, I took 
many intellectual uh, property related classes while I was at law school and felt comfortable with the area, saw it as a nice niche area that a lot of people who didn't have that type of background didn't feel comfortable getting into. But initially when I pivoted from being a sports agent to practicing law, I believed that I could convert a lot of those sports agent competitors into clients. And I've actually done that. I, I find it interesting that uh, in the intro, you referred to me as an intellectual property attorney. And I, I personally don't care how I'm branded, but I think more commonly I'm referred to as a sports lawyer, somebody who, who does a lot of work in the realm of sports. And then I would suppose secondarily as an intellectual property lawyer, where a really interesting niche came about is actually the intersection of the two, where I work with a lot of agents and athletes and other sports businesses and individuals in protecting, enforcing, and litigating their intellectual property rights. And that's an area that I don't think a lot of, there's not many people who have branded themselves in such a small niche. Well, and I think to your point, right, that the sports law industry, especially when you're talking to law students or, or whoever, people don't necessarily think about how broad an industry that that, that actually is. Uh, you know, whether you're doing intellectual property or, you know, uh, there are some people that might set up foundations for athletes or there's just different ways to intersect with professional athletes in that industry. So can you just kind of maybe give some advice to those looking to break into sports law? You're absolutely right that there are so many different areas of the law that fit in with working in the sports related business. So what I oftentimes recommend to people is don't focus on necessarily sports law subjects. In fact, when I was at in law school from 2007 to 2010, there was a single course that was offered. It wasn't even offered every semester. And it was a seminar course that you could really only get into as a, as a real third year in law school. And it was a sports law course. It was the only one. And it was really taught by an older professor who was teaching out of date precedent. And so I didn't have the law, the sports law curriculum that I think a lot of people covet. And there's not many law schools that really focus on it. There's Tulane, there's Marquette, University of Miami's built in the, in the recent years, a, a pretty robust sports law program. But truly, there's very few law schools that have one or more sports law classes. So what I strongly recommend is focus on another area of the law that really interests you. Again, for me, it was intellectual property. But there are so many different types of issues. There's a lot of family law related work. Athletes would be wise to get prenups. Uh, there's <laughs> child support and child custody uh, issues. Divorce is very common and so on and so forth. Unfortunately, criminal lawyers can do very well in this area. Constantly, we hear about athletes getting into trouble uh, in that realm, whether it's DUIs, domestic violence claims, or otherwise. You can get into uh, intellectual property, obviously, as I have done, estate planning is very important and probate related issues. Uh, you name it. So I don't think that anyone who wants to be in the realm of sports law should be hyper focused on sports. Certainly, there are areas that 
are extremely specific to quote unquote sports lawyers. For instance, I have three arbitration hearings before the end of this year in 2020, and they're all in the NFL Players Association. And the law there is very specific to, to precedent that has been established within that arbitration system. That is sports law, right? Like if we want to distinguish sports law from other areas, it would be those types of disputes. Mm -hmm. But by and large, a lot of the issues that we deal with, with athletes and agents and, and other businesses, it, it combines their personalities and the specifics of their situations with other areas of the law. Well, and I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. And to be more forthright on, on, on my end, when I was in undergrad, I was really looking into uh, the sports law arena. I even attended uh, a symposium at, at Northwestern's law school on it. Um, applied to Marquette in part because I was uh, shocked they had Bud Selig teaching part of their sport, sports law program. So I've always kind of had an interest in this area. And for example, when I went to that Northwestern Sports Law Symposium, it was very apparent that a lot of those people didn't plan necessarily to be in the sports law arena, but they, like you said, they did something different to brand themselves. And that just kind of created their avenue. Maybe they're doing labor law with the NBA Players Association, or they're doing some specific area of the law that kind of just was their uh gateway into the into the arena what i've found is a lot of general counsel at professional sports teams and a lot of lawyers at the players associations and the league offices were in private practice at large law firms that previously provided legal services as outside counsel to those teams to those players associations to those leagues and by virtue of the relationships that they built vis-a-vis -vis those types of engagements and by way of them showing off their expertise, I believe is how they really got their foot in the door to go from outside counsel to in-house counsel. I think that's a very common path. It's very rare that you will start straight out of law school and go work in-house at a professional sports organization. It happens, but it's atypical. And when it occurs, unfortunately, or fortunately for those in this situation, it's often because you know, they went to a top five law school like Harvard or Yale, and maybe the general counsel at that sports organization also went to that school. And that person had unique experience clerking for the program for the organization while they were in law school. So I think it is, very common though if you want to work in sport that you put yourself in a position to work at one of these firms that may have relationships with the organizations and perhaps you can build those relationships that way uh, not only at the firm that you work at but at the sports organizations that you may want to pivot to eventually do you think as a quick follow-up do you think that you have to be in a larger city in order to uh, compete in this industry or do you think that it's uh, more readily available from people all across the country? Well, answering that from personal experience, I don't think that it necessarily matters, especially in today's day and age. I think that you're able to brand yourself 
with all the tools that are available online, no matter where you are. I think to an extent, it does matter where you're licensed to practice. For me, I do a lot of work with athletes who are based in Florida, with a lot of agents who are based in Florida. Uh, I have a good relationship, for instance, with the Miami Dolphins organization, and we work with a lot of players there. And certainly, if I was based in Idaho, I don't know that I'd have the same opportunity. Uh, and, and then, as I mentioned earlier, if, in fact, you want to pivot and work in-house at a professional organization, I think it, it does help to work in the same geographical jurisdiction uh, as the organization where you may ultimately want to work at. And then finally, if you want to work at one of the larger firms, let's say a Proskauer, for instance, that does a lot of work with teams and, and sports leagues, then certainly you're limited in terms of where they're located, despite the fact that they have a large reach, they're not in every location. So I do think to an extent it matters where you are, but less and less so based on how connected we are as a society through online. Uh, unfortunately, there's no one bar exam you can take to be licensed in every jurisdiction. And for instance, in my state of Florida, we're very restricted. We don't allow people from outside the state to wave in. You actually have to take this bar exam. Whereas me being licensed in Florida, I can wave into many other jurisdictions. And I, I recently have in Washington, D.C., and I'm in the process of doing the same in, in New York. That, that makes a lot of sense. The, the thing that seems to be a theme here uh, is from what from your perspective, what you're talking about seems to be how do you brand yourself, right? And how do you get yourself into these particular areas? So transitioning a little bit here, you approach your legal practice from a different perspective, uh, basically as an entrepreneur. So it's a little different than traditional law firms. Can you just kind of take us, take a deeper dive into that for us on how Heitner Legal Services are, are different than traditional law firms? Yeah, I, I think bottom line is I don't have a concern about being fired by an employer. So I don't have to worry about the content that I put out there. I just have to basically worry about appeasing myself. You know, for instance, yesterday, I saw that a client that we worked for, Fred Van Vliet of the Raptors, signed a massive new contract. And here's a guy who came out of Wichita State, undrafted, continuously said, bet on yourself, believed in it, and it's paid off. And one of the things we've done is work for Fred Van Vliet on the intellectual property side. And one of the tasks that we were asked to do is to register his design mark that he uses in his business to sell all types of apparel. And he's been doing that through his online website for quite some time. So I said, you know what? This is an opportunity to basically explore my, uh, my, my positivity, my, my happiness for Fred Van Vliet, display that publicly, and also do a little, a little bit of self-promotion. And, and really, that's the hardest thing that I grapple with is how do I utilize social media to promote myself? without it seeming like an advertisement. And one thing I don't do, I don't pay for advertising. So I sent out a tweet saying, I'm happy for Fred Van Vliet. He bet on himself as a player and as a businessman. And I was happy that I was able to work with him to register his logo. And you know, that's a way that 
I'm able to basically continuously remind people about the services I provide and perhaps introduce new potential clients to what we've done before. And that's really how I've used social media to continuously build and, and grow the brand. It's, it's, but it is a difficult, it's difficult to do it in a way that doesn't turn people off, right? I want to accomplish my goal of getting the word out without having people say, oh, there's Darren again promoting himself. And it's a challenge. <laughs> so I guess those discussions about players, logos, and their intellectual property at the professional level seems pretty straightforward. But can you explain to people the ongoing discussions uh, and, and issues within the NCAA regarding, you know, the issue of name, image, and likeness? How much time do we have? As much <laughs> as you want. <laughs> uh, I'll be brief. I have long believed that every athlete deserves the right to exploit his or her name, image, and likeness, et cetera, publicity rights for commercial gain. And professional athletes have this right. College athletes have had this right taken away from them by the NCAA. So I've written about it extensively over the years. As you mentioned in the intro, for six years, I, I wrote for Forbes. I currently write for Above the Law and Sports Pro. I started a website called Sports Agent Blog back in 2005. And really on every medium, I have explained my position as to why college athletes deserve these rights. And ultimately it caught an individual's attention last year in September, a representative who actually represents my district here in Florida, his chief legislative aide reached out to me, said he was interested in, in what I was writing about and asked whether I would be part of the process to develop legislation in Florida that, with the intention of providing rights to college athletes. California had already passed such legislation, made it effective 2023, and we said, why wait so long? Let's hurry it up. Initially, we proposed July of 2020, so it would have been effective already. Ultimately, the bill passed with an effective date of July 1, 2021, and it was signed into law by Governor DeSantis. Right now, there are five states, including Florida, that have passed such legislation. We in Florida are the only that would be effective as of July 2021. Meanwhile, you have multiple efforts in Congress right now with proposals for creating similar rights on a national level. But nothing has really gotten past drafting any legislation or proposals. And it's rather unlikely that anything gets done before Florida's law is effective in July of 2021. Concurrently, you have the NCAA that's now changed its position and said, okay, we're willing to consider this. And very recently, uh, disseminated proposed legislation on the subject, which will be voted on by the Division I Council in January of 2021. So essentially where we sit is Florida effective July 1, 2021, college athletes in the state having the ability to do endorsement deals, do autograph signings, make money off the field, off the court, et cetera. The NCAA may do something similar on a national level and Congress 
could potentially pass something similar on the national level as well. But all we know right now for certain is that Florida will go effective in July of next year. So what would the impact of states or especially at the national level, what, what would the impact of these NIL laws be on the NCAA? Well, it wouldn't really be an impact on the NCAA. It would be an impact on the individuals who will now have these rights back, which were taken away from them. And ultimately, it will allow athletes to earn more than what they're getting currently in the form of scholarships when they receive them, as well as cost of living. So really, what we're giving everybody is an opportunity. Not everyone will earn the same amount of money. In fact, we expect a non-revenue athlete to maybe have a capacity of a few thousand dollars a year, whereas a starting quarterback at the University of Florida could make seven figures a year from these rights. And so I don't know that it really has an effect on the NCAA. I think the NCAA's fear, or at least its stated fear for quite some time, was that giving athletes these rights would open up Pandora's box and it would essentially be the start of the end for amateurism. I don't believe that amateurism is a real thing. Uh, so I don't necessarily think that if that's true, it's a bad thing. The NCAA has said that they believe that this could cause athletes eventually being classified as employees and earning wages for the services they provide. Again, okay. Uh, it's not our intention currently, but if that is the ultimate effect, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. So we'll see. I guess, well, to follow that up though, if Florida passes an NIL law and then California passes a different NIL law and you have a lot of states, this is just a common policy uh, hiccup that happens throughout you know, various industries. But if they all have different regulations, how does the NCAA address that? Well, it's not up for the NCAA to address. The state governments have the power over their constituents, and the NCAA cannot preempt state or federal law. So again, I don't think that it's necessarily the right question with regard to you know, what can the NCAA do about it? The answer really is nothing. The NCAA could potentially file lawsuits against those states that have passed such laws and say that there's a violation of what's referred to as the Dormant Commerce Clause, providing certain states benefits that others don't receive. I don't think that that is necessarily a, would be a strong argument for the NCAA to make. But more importantly, comparing California's law to Florida's law, yeah, there are nuances. Florida requires that athletes take a financial, get financial literacy and life skills related education. I think that's a good thing. California currently does it. But the differences are so small. I don't think that there's really enough to be concerned about with regard to differentiation between the two laws and competitive advantage in one state over the other. Really, the biggest issue is Florida is going effective 2021. California is going effective 2023. 
But the way that you ameliorate this is, in my estimation, not the NCAA doing something about it, is it's Congress on the federal level passing legislation that is reasonable, rational, and really probably mirrors what we've done in Florida. So, uh, so you're saying that it, it, you think it should be Congress's job rather than, than the NCAA, but I think it's a little bit harder to get a gauge of what Congress would do in that area. And, and honestly, they, they've got a lot on their plate. So when you're thinking about the NCAA, where do you think they, they are headed with this name, image, and likeness question? And where do you think they, they should go with the policy? I think that, that one I might know the answer to. Well, I, I think that they're headed toward a vote in January with the Division One Council concerning this legislation, which may change before then. And I do think that it will pass. I believe that the NCAA will change its rules to allow a certain level of name, image, and likeness rights to college athletes. My concern is that it doesn't go far enough and that there's far too many restrictions on it. I, I recently wrote an article at Above the Law that covers three different areas of concern. And one big area that I'm concerned about is that the NCAA still doesn't want to give athletes the same rights that the universities will have. And essentially give the university so much power that it's not an objective standard they will be using to decide whether or not an athlete can engage in a certain opportunity. I don't think it's fair for universities to enter into deals with alcohol beverage companies and sports gambling companies and say that the athletes cannot. Now, I don't necessarily take the position that the athletes should be able to enter into those types of deals, but if they shouldn't be able to, then neither should the universities. And then there's very overbroad and vague language with regard to the universities being able to prevent athletes from entering into deals if it, go against, if it goes against the school's values. And that, that type of language bothers me because I, I think that there really needs to be objective standards. And as close to a free market economy for these athletes as possible, where unless there's something that is so outlandish and related to improper booster activity, these deals should just be going through. And there shouldn't be any stalling in, in terms of these deals between athletes and third parties becoming effective. I get the idea of having a third party clearinghouse in a sense. Uh, and I think that's wise for the NCAA not to be involved in that, but I still have my concerns. Well, and you're, you're talking about a policy that goes beyond the university canceling uh, or preventing an athlete from taking a particular deal, not just if it conflicts with maybe an, an advertisement deal that the university have. So, you know, you don't want, an athlete to take a deal with Pepsi if the university is already with Coke. You're saying that the policy well, I, oftentimes I, will go I beyond that. that. I have a big issue with that. So if, if the University of Florida has a deal with Pepsi and it says that in a post-game conference, an athlete has to have a Gatorade on the table, great. But I can promise you that when the athlete is in his dorm, he does not have to be drinking Gatorade. And if he's drinking a Coke product, that's not a violation. There's no issue. So if, if an athlete wants to then have a deal with Coca-Cola, why shouldn't he be able to? 
if it doesn't violate the terms of the university's contract with Pepsi, why should there be a prohibition on the athlete entering into that deal? And then another problem that I have with the proposed legislation in the way that I read it, that being the NCA's proposed legislation, is it seems to say that, let's say the University of Florida has a deal with Jordan Brand, that the athlete can't independently have a deal with Jordan Brand. So remember, when the athlete's on the field, he's wearing Jordan Brand uniform, but when he's in his dorm room or he's going to class, he can be wearing Adidas. Why can't the athlete also enter into a deal with Jordan Brand to always be wearing Jordan Brand? I, I, I'm not understanding the restrictions. To the extent that I am understanding it, it seems to be built in to protect the universities. And if that's true, then the NCAA is still doing a disservice to the athletes. This isn't true name, image, and likeness rights. Well, is, is that not a, a, a tiered discussion that they need to have? So at least in my opinion, the policy of preventing students from being engaging in deals where it goes against the, the university's policies versus a deal where it actually doesn't conflict but may just advertise against something that the university has. So the Coke versus Pepsi dilemma, those are two different discussions that both probably need to be taken into consideration separately, correct? Or those, or do those go hand in hand? Yeah, well, we don't want disputes between the athletes and the universities. We don't want athletes to engage in contractual activity that will jeopardize the university's standing with third parties. So to the extent that a deal between an athlete and a third party would lead to a technical breach between an existing deal that was consummated by the university and a third party, yeah, absolutely, we wanna make sure that we're preventing those types of entanglements. The, the issue is when there is no conflict, why should there be a restriction? And the way that I read the NCA's draft of the proposed legislation, it seems as though the restrictions are going far beyond the worry about entanglements being, being brought up based on uh, the athletes engaging with third parties. It, it appears to be more than that in the sense that it's really trying to shield these universities from having their partners leave those deals and just sign independently with the athletes. And that really shouldn't be much of a concern. My belief is these brands will find as they do currently in the professional ranks that there's more value when you associate with the program and the individual. So changing gears a little bit, if let's say name, image, and likeness is, is for currently, you know, amateur athletes is opened up nationwide. Uh, what do you think that impact would be on, on, you know, schools that have uh, a good degree of notoriety, like your university of Louisville, university of Kentucky, university of Florida versus like a, a smaller, more regional schools. What, what do you think that would do or mean for them? I'm not sure. I think the people who, cry out that it's going to 
create differences and an unfair playing field need to open up their eyes and wake up to the fact that there is uh, a lot of uh, disparity between those schools currently. And that if the university of Florida plays Vanderbilt university of Florida is going to win 99 out of a hundred times. Uh, and that's within the sec itself. <laughs> There's recruiting. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> that's that, that's, Accurate. That's, accurate. That's absolutely right. true. Right. That it's pretty funny. Like yesterday. Yeah. So like, you know, there, there's disparity already. There's an un, there's not a level playing field on the recruiting trail. Now, will that become larger? I don't know. I tend to think the answer is actually no. I think a lot of people, a lot of talented players may feel as though they can be the guy or the girl on campus at a smaller school, perhaps in a larger market and have real opportunities. I mean, there are smaller schools that are in major markets that don't have the ability to recruit well currently just because they don't have a a storied past. They don't have great facilities. They don't have big name coaches, but maybe that market that they're in opens new opportunities for them. So I I really don't know. Um, And and it's sort of a wait and see. Will the rich get richer? Nobody has provided any sort of proof or evidence as to why that would be true. I think it's really just the people who were against us from day one who are trying to utilize that to justify their position. But who knows? Do you, do you not think that a place, you know, such as Vanderbilt, you know, that is in a blossoming city like Nashville could take on a much greater role because in, in, competitively because they can recruit athletes and say, look, you have Nashville at your disposal to try and get deals versus going to, a place even like University of Kentucky that's in Lexington, that's in a smaller market. Now they're more of a national brand, but they don't have the city of Nashville that can really produce uh, a lot more economic development. It could, you know, I see the other way around, you know, where it may not matter in terms of where the school is located. It may matter more about national exposure and how many games are nationally televised, how many are on ABC and Fox and ESPN, as opposed to, you know, a smaller network. There's a lot of variables here. Uh, Look at, look at the landscape in the professional world and think about, to your point about, about location, so many players, irrespective of the fact that the Giants and the Jets stink, would like to play there. It's a huge market. I remember, I think back to Le'Veon Bell. And I think like his big game plan of getting out of Pittsburgh and going to the Jets, albeit hindsight 2020, that was a failure. You know, I think one of his big motivations was, I want to be in New York, marketable. I can make a lot of money off the field. And a lot of players think that way. So it's possible that we do see some change in the recruiting landscape based on geographic location and market size. It's all speculation until, until this thing gets started. And I think that's a really important point, which is 
There's a lot of activity going on in name, image, and likeness right now, but not until July 1 of 2021 is anything effective. So importantly, no college athletes can start exploiting their publicity rights currently. So, uh, Darren, I want to talk about, you mentioned you just don't agree with the term amateurism with regard to NCAA athletes. And I'd never really thought about that, but that to me is, is a really good argument. Like I would consider myself an amateur in, in any sport that I play, but if I were to set foot on a division one football field with other supposed amateurs, they would break me from head to toe, you know? And and it's so apparent that these athletes have an aptitude for the sports that they that they end up playing at a very young age. Do you ever see, you know, in Europe, uh, especially with soccer, we see like the academy programs and, and uh, particularly athletic individuals being identified at a very young age and being allowed to transition into like a pro format much, much younger than in the United States. Do you ever see the United States transitioning into that kind of European style of, of sports management? Where, where the athletes are sort of in these like lower level clubs that are owned by the professional organizations? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. That's a really, really good question. I suppose anything is possible. You and know, obviously we, there's like, a, there's an infrastructure that would need to be built and it's a big hurdle, but you look at how it's done over there and, and it's very interesting. And I think it's probably to the player's benefit. You see 16-year-olds playing professionally exactly. in, in Europe all the time. You know, and building just massive fan bases. I think you know, part of the reason why we haven't seen that is, at least our perspective, is that there's a, a differentiation between soccer and, let's say, professional American football, where you know, in terms of the style of play, the quote-unquote physic- violence or physicality, Um, and I don't know the comfort level in America for creating those types of systems, at least with professional football. Um, you know, I, I, am not sure whether the distinction is proper, but I think that could be a big reason why we haven't seen it. You know, I don't know. I, I, it's possible with basketball. I'm aware of, let's say like an IMG academies in Bradenton, Florida, where a lot of high profile basketball players, tennis players, Etc. Go there at an early age, prior to college, uh, and and perfect their acumen, their skill. And so, I think to a very lower level, that's what we see there, and we don't really see it replicated throughout the United States. More commonly, it's just the middle school to high school route, with you know, in basketball, AAU, and peewee football, and so on and so forth. But I suppose that you could potentially at some point see the European model bleed over to the U.S. Fair enough. Well, so I would be remiss then if I didn't ask you, uh, I think you've written about the topic previously. What is kind of your opinion uh, as an outsider of the possibility of Louisville getting an NBA team at some point in the future, 10, 20, 30 years down the road even? I think I wrote about that years and years ago for Forbes. Um, talked to a lot of very influential people in Louisville, including uh, someone who became a very good friend of mine, Jonathan Blue. I don't know if you know him, but 
Um, and he's done a lot in the agency world as well. Uh, you know, there's always been a strong desire by those influential people in Louisville. I know that at one point in time, Price Waterhouse Coopers put together uh, an analysis as to the viability of a basketball team in Louisville. And I, I know a lot has changed since then, and I'm not sure what type of analyses have taken place since then, but it appears that you'd have a very, very strong uh, fan base that would support the team. But a concern has always been the market size and also the, the geography in terms of where Louisville is situated, which is really in close proximity to many other existing NBA teams. And then you also have the other issue of the NBA being very slow to have any expansion teams. The NBA is going through an extraordinary uh, moment of growth, irrespective of COVID-19. And just look at the 44 players who have signed free agent deals for more than $1.1 billion thus far. Uh, but all that said, there's other locations that have argued very strongly for an expansion team. And so I don't know where Louisville ranks on that list. I know it's somewhere on there. I think the NBA is, has always looked at Louisville as a viable option, but I just don't know that it's number one or number two. And will the NBA actually expand to bring on more teams and more than one or two teams? And that's a, that's a, an important question. And I honestly just don't know the answer to it. Well, that's, that's completely fair. And I think the, the one uh, argument Louisville tries to make potentially about market size is that they, you would have to probably include Lexington and then Cincinnati as well, because you, you have the share back and forth, you know, there's a lot of Cincinnati Bengals fans and Cincinnati Reds fans in the city that go that way. You would think it would be reciprocal with basketball potentially. So, but that's really the only counter to market size and, and the close proximity to other cities, you know, like Indianapolis and Memphis. Uh, but I, I appreciate the, the outsider opinion on this. Transitioning back a little bit more towards uh, the leadership position. So you are currently on the Fort Lauderdale Board of Parks and Recreation uh, and Beaches. Uh, can you tell us a little bit what, what that's like and what you do on that board? Sure. Uh, well, I, I'm, I'm, as I mentioned earlier, I have a, a degree in political science. I've always had a fascination with politics, which I know sounds crazy, especially with the world we live in currently and <laughs> the political climate. But it's always interested me. Uh, I've always had this proclivity to be involved in civics. And uh, so being involved with the process of the name, image, and likeness bill in the state of Florida and meeting some of the individuals uh, that do work in Tallahassee in their state capital, I became fascinated with getting in, involved in some form. And I didn't, there were no races that I really wanted to run in, in, in 2020. And so when I was looking at the various types of local committees that I could become a part of, the Parks, Recreation, and Beaches Board particularly caught my interest. I, I'm somebody who has a lot of love for nature, outdoors, activity, the beaches, etc. And so, uh, you know, for me, it, it was a really good fit. And where I live, it's really important. Tourism is a big part of our economy. Uh, 
Um, outdoor activities are, are things that people here in Fort Lauderdale, Florida live for. I mean, whether it's paddle boarding, boating, going to the beach, exploring the parks, et cetera. So for me, it was a, a really good way to, to basically dip my toes in the water, uh, become involved in, in, in some respect, and hopefully a starting point. I'm not sure what, uh, if anything, I, I will run for in the future, but uh, I am motivated to become more involved. And, and I think this is a really good start. Well, that's awesome. So if in your role, do you see, it, it seems like you're working a lot with like quality of life amenities that I've argued for a long time is extremely important in being competitive with, with other cities, whether it's like attracting or retaining jobs, but that also benefits the actual city itself, you know, versus subsidies or other things like that. How important do you think those almost bucket list amenities are uh, to cities that want to compete? Huge. Uh, fortunately, we have a, a pretty large budget to work on existing parks and, and actually create new parks in the city. But I think beautification is very important for every city. Having those types of parks for people to go to, to enjoy really improves quality of life, which then bleeds into many other areas, uh, even outside of personal life, but also professional life and how well people operate in their, in their business capacities. I think you know, having these, these places uh, to enjoy and appreciate nature and appreciate what we have and spend time with family, hopefully away from our cell phones, which we're always attached to, and I'm guilty of that as well, uh, I think is really important. And it, it doesn't even, you know, it's, it's one of those things that really shouldn't have to be justified from an economic standpoint. I mentioned tourism before, but this is really about who we are as individuals and, you know, having these, these places of peace and beauty and, and, and ability to kind of get away from the, the 24 seven life that we now live in, where we're just super connected and, and always attached to our phone and technology, like having, having these parks and having the ability to engage in the outdoor activities, having beautiful beaches, which unfortunately are very, there's so much litter from tourists, but also people who live here. It's, it's sad. I mean, we do beach cleanups and it's like the amount of plastics that are there and we have endangered sea turtles on our beaches. It's, it's, it's really sad, but you feel good about, about going out there and cleaning the beaches and doing what we can to just make our world better. We're, we're all affected by it. So, what do you think then uh, cities, you know, a city like Louisville without access to beaches that are obviously huge and, and, and attracting tourists um, can do to make itself more attractive from, from a quality of life amenities perspective? Oh, I don't know specifically about Louisville, but we, my wife and I and our dog, we just took a, a two week trip to Utah, Montana, Idaho, and Wyoming. And you know, we loved going out to the national parks and doing hikes and being in nature. And look, it was a time of COVID. And yet you had a lot of people out there uh, enjoying what what nature offered them uh, in its in its natural environment. 
And so I, I don't know. I, I think maybe you can take certain things from, from those locations. Obviously, the, the geography and terrain lends itself to certain opportunities in those areas. But uh, tourism was, was doing really well, especially in Utah. When we went to uh, Zion, it was slammed. And we were talking to people. They said they, they've never seen tourism like it before. So maybe, maybe coronavirus, you know, maybe a silver lining was that it provided an opportunity for people here in the U.S. to get out and explore all the beauty that actually we have domestically and do more activities out in nature, out at the parks that they never really thought about doing before. I know that's true for us. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I can sympathize. I've definitely been getting outside more often, you know, uh, you just get a little bit of cab- cabin fever with uh, everything going on with the pandemic. But uh, before we wrap it up, we're definitely winding down here. I just want to give you a chance to promote any projects that you're working on or anything you're involved with. Uh, you know, social media, you can find me at Darren Heitner. It's D-A-R-R-E-N-H-E-I-T-N-E-R on Twitter, uh, on LinkedIn, my name, um, Instagram, Facebook. I have a podcast called How to Play the Game. That's on Apple, Spotify, probably wherever you can find podcasts. And, uh, you know, that's that's pretty much it. I, you know, I, I provide free information. I talk about sports business. I talk about sports law. Uh, I have a website, Sports Agent Blog, that's still around 15 years later, have awesome writers, also <laughs> completely free. So check that out as well. No, that that's awesome, man. But uh, before we let you go, we try and ask all our guests the same question at the end. Uh, if you had the power to change one policy, uh, for you, I guess it would be in Fort Lauderdale or cities across America, what, what would it be? Ooh, in Fort Lauderdale. That's a good question. One policy that I would like to change. Are our guests usually a little bit quicker to answer this? <laughs> Fair, fairly quick, but yeah. Well, especially m- many of our guests are from Louisville, so I, I, maybe it's just easier to find find things you want to change around here. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I, I the the whole coronavirus pandemic has presented a lot of issues here, and sort of a lot of wavering as to whether things should completely shut down, should there be curfews, et cetera. I'd like to see some sort of policy that allows businesses to remain open and and that we don't see a shutdown in the near future. But I am concerned that there are far too many people here in Fort Lauderdale who are going around not wearing masks whatsoever. And I'm mainly concerned for the elderly population in the sense that, you know, we're coming up on Thanksgiving, the holidays, and I'd I'd hate to see people as carriers spread it to the elderly population because that's really, those are the individuals who are at risk. So it's not a specific policy change, but sort of a broad change where we respect the businesses, we allow them to stay open, but they need to be doing a better job of making sure that that their patrons are wearing masks. It's definitely a difficult balance to strike that I think most cities and states uh, across the country have been dealing with. So uh, the, the point is very well taken. But we appreciate you uh, coming on our podcast today, Darren. This is, this is fantastic. 
Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. This is great. We'll pick back up with our reaction segment after a word from our sponsor. Another great interview. Uh, Darren was, I think, extremely interesting with, in particular, not just the NIL stuff, which I think we're probably going to focus most of this reaction segment on. Yeah. But, you know, from, from my perspective, in undergrad, at least, I was very strongly considered going into sports law or sports agency, and uh, I'm kind of glad I didn't. But it was a very intriguing interview from that perspective for me. Uh, what do you think about it? Uh, I mean, I loved getting to getting to hear his insights on what it meant to be, or what it was like being a sports agent, what he saw as like the future of the NCAA's relationship with its athletes and touching on his position in Fort Lauderdale at the end. That was kind of cool too. And that was just the, the thing that you and I keep going back to over and over and over again is cities need to invest in the amenities to, like that, that really benefit their uh, constituents because then when businesses are looking for places to move or, or stay, they realize the happiness of their employees is one of the most important aspects. And yeah, I think it, he just reiterated that. It can almost be like a chicken or an egg. Is it like the, the company's looking for that or is it the employees? Like some people are, are looking at towns and then they're look for towns first and then they look for work, you know? Yeah. Cause they're just like, I need to live in Austin or I want to live in Fort Lauderdale, you know, and then they'll figure it out once they get there. Yeah. Either case, the city yeah. should be building. the amenities. Yeah. 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 No, no, for <laughs> sure. For sure. But I don't want to change courses too drastically, but I kind of did want to jump into the, the white paper for this week. It was uh, titled the Olympic sized loophole in California's fair play to Fair Pay to Play Act. And the Fair Pay to Play Act is the California law. It got all kinds of notoriety a year or so ago. It basically gave college athletes the ability to receive compensation for their name, image, and likeness. It's set to go into effect in 2023. So we haven't actually gotten to see uh, what the results are going to look like in practice, but... Well, and that's that's what Darren hit on, that... Florida was going to come in in 2021. And so you might see the impact there before you see what happens in California, just because it starts earlier, but they are different laws. They're different laws. And there's almost a, uh, it's around a dozen States that have either voted on this legislation or are considering it, you know? And so it's, it's a really rapidly changing landscape in college sports, but the California law, I think is probably what a lot of States are looking at when the, when they're, drafting their versions of this uh, legislation and uh, the big hiccup in it uh, from a policy perspective, it might not grant college athletes the, the share of compensation uh, that, that many people expect, or, or at least that the media has maybe portrayed it to. So uh, the issue here is that the athletes are actually required to, uh, or the, the law contains a, a no conflict clause that prohibits athletes from, uh, in the word of the law, uh, they shall not enter into a contract providing compensation for the name, image, and likeness that is in conflict with any provision of the team's contracts. So for example, if the school has a deal with Under Armour, the athlete then can't go and 
sign with Nike. Yeah. And, or, or even if they do, they're not allowed to wear that on any team affiliated school affiliated event because those are all covered in their, in the school's contracts and the team's contracts. Well, and so, but see, I think that's the level of nuance that Darren was going into, right. Yeah. Is that, yeah, if, if, University of Kentucky is a Nike school and all the athletes wear Nikes on the court when they're playing, but when they're going to and from class, that wouldn't necessarily conflict. I think it's going to be a delicate balance to ask student athletes to figure out what that line is, especially if they're not allowed to have agents or other people that can kind of guide them through it. Well, the law actually does grant them the ability to hire an agent and a lawyer specifically to kind of guide them through this new name, image, and likeness issue. So the, the agent is to set them up with contracts. The lawyer, obviously, is to kind of keep them within the confines mm-hmm. of the law. I think the issue from the athlete's perspective when you're talking about compensation is uh, the schools are, uh, excuse me, brands aren't really paying them to walk around the school. That's not really the most valuable time for, for the advertising. It's when they're in front of, you know, a TV audience, you know, primetime television, like a major network game, you're going to be in front of tens of millions of people. And that's when brands want to see their logos on these athletes. And if that's going to be prohibited, then their actual the value that they would uh, derive from their name image and likeness is going to be substantially lower than if, you know, they were allowed to wear whatever they wanted when the court. Yeah. But then you have the, I I mean, I think that's still true for a lot of like the NBA stuff, you know, there's the exception, you know, if you're in the NBA and you're allowed to wear Nike shoes, I'm sure, you know, KD can wear the KDs or LeBron can wear the bronze, whatever. But it seems like in college, it's still going to be closer to a, if you want to make money, you probably have to go do the direct commercial, uh, like go do a used car sale. Yeah. I was going to say yeah, classic, a car lot sale, um, to get most of the money. But it, this still brings me back to the issue that I think is the most potent. And that is that the NCAA is going to have to make its decision based on what all these other states do, because if Florida doesn't have that conflict language, which I don't know if it does or not at this point, then how does the NCAA make its regulations if the NCAA's proposed language says that you can't conflict with what the school is doing, but the state of Florida does? So that means that the NCAA would have to make a very broad governing law or rule or just not make any rule at all and just say that it's up to the states to make their own NIL. Yeah, we've actually gotten kind of conflicting messages from the NCAA about how they're going to treat this. They say that they're working towards their own provision to, to kind of provide clarity on, on how they think name, image, and likeness should be treated nationwide. But at the same time, some of the language they've used to talk about it might kind of indicate that they may be thinking about filing a kind of uh, dormant commerce clause uh, argument against or a suit against the current name, image, and likeness standards. Which is what Darren hinted at, too. Which is Exactly. I mean, he definitely mentioned that. And, and like, we're seeing that, like, you're getting this kind of current patchwork of different uh, legislations regarding name, image, and likeness. And when there isn't that standard rule, it's probably going to create winners and losers, and that, that would, you know, essentially be what's going to give rise to that, that type of argument. Yeah, and, and so it's going to be difficult to see – the incident of like crafting a law that either wouldn't be prevented by the dormant commerce clause or would be tight enough to encompass 
everything all the states it almost seems like it's impending for litigation yeah and i don't know how much you can trust just the the current media framework to to give detailed uh, legal analysis on this topic mm-hmm. but i i think the NCAA, you've heard a lot of people say that whatever proposed legislation they come out with to try and address this name image and likeness it's going to be it's going to fall far short of what we've seen the states try and do you know that it's not going to provide the type of compensation that that athletes would be guaranteed under the current framework in in at least california well and is there anything that you've seen that the ncaa is planning on doing as far as uh going to have a shared ncaa image and allowing the ncaa to use the image of the student athletes you know i don't think they've actually indicated that the anything that explicit yet that they've mm-hmm. kept it pretty close to their chest you know and i, I think that's the, that's probably how it's going to be until they actually come up with something well and that but see this is, this goes back to another kind of avenue that that I think it's overlooked a little bit too is and I'll the thing that I take from personal experience is that you know I played college tennis at the division 2 level you know not spectacularly high tennis but I remember signing the NCAA form or the college form that the university and NCAA got to use my image, you know, for their type of promotions. Uh, I just wonder how that type of things, how that plays into all this NIL stuff going forward. Yeah. You know, it, it's tough to say, I, I don't know that we'll ever see the NCAA barred from using students images. Like, I feel like that's, that just doesn't seem like something that they're ever going to, but that's what happened with the EA sports, you know, with the NCAA college football a little bit, but that was more direct. That was using specifically those individuals, not like a group photo or like a group promotion of their university. It was more. Yeah, and like, I think they kind of chose to head that one off the past. They, they just discontinued the games rather than actually ponying up the cash. Well, know? but there was, there was a, I mean, there were lawsuits. There were lawsuits. That, so. uh, yeah. Specifically the one out of California for the UCLA, UCLA player. player. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. It, it's tough to say wh- what they're going to do. Um, uh, as what, a fan, as a fan of the video game, I hope that they incorporate that into the name image likeness and pay all the players so that they can bring back some of those games. Oh but. yeah. Same here, man. I, I used to wear those discs out, but <laughs> I, yeah. I think what we're seeing is a, a rising tide. Like athletes are, are finding a voice and they're definitely uh, not shy about speaking their, their mind going into college. And especially uh, professional athletes are, will still, uh, they, they have college players backs so that they think mm-hmm. it's kind of unfair. And, and I think many just casual sports fans are, are kind of the, their, uh, their ideas on the issue are kind of changing. And even the paper, it, it used the analogy of, uh, Olympic athletes up until 2019 were barred by the Olympic charter from, uh, engaging in that same kind of no contest, no, type conflict, prov- yeah. no competition provision, excuse me, uh, uh, by rule 40 of the Olympic charter, I believe. Mm-hmm. And, uh, what it did was it created a blackout period of, around the Olympics, basically bracketing them and mm-hmm. saying that you're not allowed to, to sign any, uh, marketing deals that would conflict with Olympic Events. sponsors. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so uh, that uh, same thing with 
you know, the on court appearances when you're, you're at your most valuable, like for college athletes, it's like for Olympic athletes, the Olympics is like their time to shine. You know, if there's a blackout period of a couple of months on either end, like that's when you're at your most valuable. Mm. And so the, we saw that change at the international level. And I, like, I personally hope that w- we see a change for college athletes at the national level. Yeah. Well, and I'll say this too. Uh, I think the NIL provides, the balance between payment of players uh, and not paying players at all. Uh, I I do worry about the potential inequity. If you allow for paying of players that some schools just couldn't afford it at all, or some schools would pay players and their resources and their facilities would dwindle in comparison. And then it would just create a greater gap. But this NIL is very unique. I don't see like Darren hinted at, we don't know where, the value is going to be added, whether it's going to be the big, you know, like Alabama football, you Kentucky basketball, or if it's going to really help some of those other places like Vanderbilt or even like a Butler university in the, in the middle of Indianapolis that, you know, their basketball team is popular. It's a big city. Maybe they get a lot more sponsorships. You don't know. We don't know where this is headed. So I do think it's a good balance to help provide and, and still allow to have the, equitability between all the, the schools, at least as much as the of like can have. Yeah, no, I, I think it's a sweet spot, you mm-hmm. know, and I, I really hope we get some kind of decision at the national level uh, that, that does fairly compensate or allow for fair compensation yeah. of athletes for, and it, and it was a compromise forced upon the NCAA. Let's, let's not pretend like they were being active and oh, proactive no. in this. In, at, yeah. In I mean, they, they've clawed tooth and nail to keep every dollar they can, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, with that said, I, th- I think we've, I don't want to beat this topic in, into the ground too no. much. I know Darren went a lot into it. So is there anything else you have to add about this, this episode? No, that's it for me, man. All right. I'll just say like, we decided to make this our, maybe pre-holiday Thanksgiving episode and, and start the season a little bit earlier. So there's going to be a little bit of a longer gap before our next episode. Yeah. Just this episode, you know, with holidays going on and, uh, and everything taking place, we, we uh, decided to get this one out just because we had it ready. Yeah. And, and make sure people have something they can do. And when they're, if they're traveling or with a little more free time, so it'll probably be a couple of weeks before we start the rest of this season, but just stay tuned guys. Appreciate you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks guys. As always, thanks for tuning in. Thanks for joining us on Building This Community. If you'd like any more information, you can follow us on Twitter at buildingthiscom, C-O-M, or you can follow Andrew at Andrew J. Klump. And you can also follow Luke at LMP43. Definitely subscribe, and we look forward to talking to you guys next week.